Well, again, good morning and welcome. My name is uh, John, one of the pastors here, and I encourage you to open up to our scripture passage for today. We're looking at Luke chapter 11, 29 through 36. So Luke 11, 29 uh, through 36. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is Sorry, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning that your spirit would be alive and active in the hearts and minds of every single person here. Uh, Lord, you know the story of everyone who's gathered. You know they aren't here accidentally. And we pray that your word would be used by your spirit to make us new in Christ and build us up into the fullness of Christ, Lord. Only you can do this. And we pray that you would now make us new. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, anybody remember these magic eye 3D pictures? Uh, yeah, some of you all remember them. They, I remember them being in, printed in the Sunday newspaper, at least I think in the mid-90s. And if you looked at them, it was just a jumble of like colors and patterns, and you'd look at it and think there was nothing special. Uh, but these pictures that looked like gibberish had a hidden 3D picture in them. And, and I learned that they were technically called auto-stereograms. Now, I realize I'm d dating myself a little bit because uh, some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and some of you have never even touched a newspaper in your life. Right? Uh, it's funny because I still feel pretty young. I feel like I can do all the things I did when I was younger. But, so it's strange to think that now that I'm in my 40s, I'm middle-aged instead of young. But the idea is you would take that image in the newspaper and you would hold it up to your face right in front of your nose, relax your eyes, and then slowly move the picture away from your face as it's blurry. And then suddenly this 3D image would kind of pop out. Who here could see those images? Anybody? Okay, yeah, yeah. Who here could never see those images? Yeah, I could never. I even tried it this week to see if middle age had helped and it didn't at all. <laughs> But unfortunately, I never could see them, but that doesn't mean they weren't there. Right? Now, if you just saw that image in the newspaper without knowing anything about it, you would just look at it and move on. You'd think, oh, it's just a bunch of patterns, nothing interesting here. 
But if someone told you, no, there's actually an image hidden in there, you would give it a try. That you would have maybe just a little bit, but a, a bit of belief, a bit of faith, that there must be something in there, and that would give you the eyes and the desire to try again and see that thing that you couldn't originally see. We're probably all familiar with that expression, I'll believe it when I see it. But the opposite can also be true, that sometimes believing leads to seeing. Believing sometimes leads to seeing. Believing that something is there gives you the eyes to perhaps see what you'd missed before. Believing there is a 3D image there gives you the desire to pick up that paper and try it again and again so that you can attempt to see it for yourself. And that is what Jesus is getting at in our passage this morning. These people want another sign. They're saying, oh, Jesus, we just want you to do one more thing to prove to us that you really are who you say you are. They think that seeing will lead to believing. But Jesus actually counters that and says that when you come to faith, that it's the opposite, that it's believing that will lead to seeing. This is why you can talk about Christianity with, with a friend or a neighbor or coworker, and, and you can list out all these reasons why you believe that are so clear and so convincing for you, and yet utterly not convincing for the other person. But don't be discouraged when that happens, because that exact same thing happened to Jesus. And so what I want us to remember this morning is that believing leads to seeing. Believing leads to seeing, and we're going to look at this just two ways. First, the sign of Jonah, and then second, the lamp of the body. So first, the sign of Jonah. We've jumped back into the same scene that we looked at last week, where, if you remember, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, and he's able to speak again, something truly remarkable and encouraging. But then some people accuse Jesus of being controlled or an agent of Beelzebub, Satan. But then there are others they, they simply say, well, we just want another sign. And these are the more respectable critics. They don't accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan, but they're rational. They just say, well, we just need a little bit more evidence, and then maybe we'll believe. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 29, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? We, we can turn to a, a parallel passage in Matthew 12, verse 39, that has the same incident, and there it says, Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the huge belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in Matthew... Jesus points to the sign of Jonah as Jonah's, we could say, burial in the tomb of the sea, or dying down in the sea, essentially, being buried in the belly of a fish, and then experiencing something of a resurrection three days later when he's vomited onto dry land. And Jesus says, that is the same thing that is going to happen to me. And we can see parallels in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is saying that this is the ultimate sign about who I am. And this brings us to an important point that the resurrection is really the key or the foundational point for Christianity. That none of the other stuff matters if the resurrection is true, and if the resurrection is true, then everything else will fall into place. Many people can read Scripture, and you can have objections to things in Scripture, like, well, what about the story of creation 
Did God really make everything in six days? Or what about the flood and all these other things in the Old Testament that can be hard to accept, especially in our modern world and sensibilities? I think there are good ways to make sense of all these things, but in the end, those things we could say are secondary to the resurrection. That if Jesus really did die, was buried, and resurrected, then that is something that should change your entire life. That, but if he didn't do that, well, the rest of the stuff in the Bible doesn't really matter all that much because, you know, anybody can make up some great stories. But death is the most unstoppable force in the world. Everything is dying. Everything is sliding towards decay and chaos. Tech billionaires spend millions of dollars in order to figure out a way to cheat death. The rest of us are just trying to find some simple life hacks to extend our life. But death will knock on all of our doors. And it doesn't ask permission. And sometimes it comes when you're least ready for it. And the entire universe, we could say, is dying. One day even the sun will go dark. Things decay and move towards disorder and death and chaos. The whole universe as it is, is tilted towards death. So if someone comes into this world and overcomes the way that the very universe is tilted towards death, and he shows that he's not bound by the laws of nature, and then he comes and he overcomes it and says, I can do that because I actually created all of this. I uphold it. I govern it. That should get our attention. Jesus' resurrection shows that he is the architect of it all. And that is why the resurrection is the hinge point for Christianity. That if it is true, everything else will fall into place one way or the other. That is the key thing to understand. So that if you are you know, wrestling with Christianity, is this true? The resurrection in Jesus is the best place to start. But what is interesting is here in the book of Luke, we see a slightly different emphasis. So I'm going to give you all some bonus content on, on Bible study, how to do Bible study, especially in the Gospels, where we have usually multiple accounts of the same situation or same story. That the goal when interpreting the, a story in the Gospels, or any place where there's multiple accounts, isn't to take all the Gospels to kind of recreate the original event and then make your applications and kind of decisions based on what you think that original event was based on putting all the Gospels together. That can be an interesting exercise. That can be helpful right, to look at what does the Gospels have to say about this event and how does it all, you know, how to use all the Gospels to put it into one whole. But ultimately, I would say, we don't want to just blend all the Gospels into one whole and then understand the story. To use a, a coffee analogy, which is really just probably useful to any other coffee snobs out there, uh, like me who like to buy overpriced coffee, which I don't know if that's anybody here, <laughs> but it's like a breakfast blend, right? Where they are putting a bunch of beans together to make a certain profile so that wherever you buy that coffee or whenever you buy it, it always tastes roughly the same because they blend it all together, but you lose some of the nuances of the various beans and where they came from. But I would say because each gospel writer was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel, 
It means the differences that we see in the Gospels are also inspired and useful to show us something that is unique. So that if you blend it all together, you miss some of the unique differences that are there. And what we really want to do is to note the differences. What is left out in Luke or John or Matthew? What is presented in a different way? What is emphasized here that isn't emphasized there? Going back to the coffee analogy, this is like a single origin roast where all of the beans come from one farm, one roaster, and they give the unique flavor profile of that place where those coffee beans were grown. And each gospel gives us a single origin take on who Jesus is. Each one is inspired and gives us a slightly different perspective to one, give us a four-dimensional picture of who Jesus is, but also to show us what Jesus' message means for the people that author was writing to. Because Jesus is the center of Christianity and the Bible, the fulfillment of all Scripture. God wanted us not just to have a one-dimensional view of Jesus, not just a blend of four different accounts of Jesus, because he could have put it all together. He wants us to have four distinct Gospels to give us not just a 1D or 2D or 3D, but a, we could say four-dimensional picture of who Jesus is. That It's like from each gospel, you're standing and looking at one side of Jesus and noting who he is, and all four of them together help us to see the whole. So with that in mind, let's get back to our passage. And the thing that stood out to me is that Luke doesn't include anything about the sign of Jonah being related to Jonah's time in the fish. But what does he say instead? Verse 30. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. So again we ask, well, how was Jonah assigned to the Ninevites? Now if you read the book of Jonah, we don't know if he talked about his time in the belly of the fish or not, but we do know what is explicit there. Jonah 3 verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So the sign that Jonah was to the Ninevites was his proclamation of God and his coming judgment. And how did the Ninevites react to that sign? Well, Jonah continues, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It seems that here Luke is emphasizing the sign of Jonah is the proclamation of God's word. And then notice, what does Jesus tell us next? Verse 31, he mentions the queen of the south, which is also known as the, the queen of Sheba. Jesus pulls another example from the Old Testament, and this time from the reign of King Solomon. King Solomon, as you may know, is the wisest king of Israel. His wisdom was world-renowned, so much so that word traveled throughout the whole region about this king named Solomon, and word got to the queen of the south, and we don't know exactly where she is from, but it's likely one of the kingdoms that is nowadays either Yemen or possibly Ethiopia. And 1 Kings 10 verse 1 says, When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Now, don't miss some of the significance here. Here, this queen embarks on a one to 2,000 mile journey 
between before planes, trains, and automobiles because she heard a rumor about a wise man who had a relationship with the Lord. And then after speaking to Solomon, she says, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. The queen of the south, it seems, came to faith because she heard a rumor that she thought was worth checking out. But these people that Jesus is talking to here have just seen a miraculous sign. Jesus casts out a man who's demon-possessed. Jesus has done all these other miraculous things, but they still say, ah, I think I need some more proof. That she shows that in the end, it's not because you need another sign. And then Jesus goes back to the Ninevites. He says, they too will rise and stand in judgment against these people. Because what was the sign they had? All they had was this crazy guy from out of town who didn't really want to be there and kind of smelled like fish. And he was walking through the city yelling at people, telling them, repent, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It would be easy to dismiss that guy. And yet they repented and they believed. And Jesus' point is, and yet you're saying you need more evidence? So why didn't these people believe? when others who had far less evidence did believe. And that brings us to our second point, the lamp of the body. In this next section, Jesus shows us why they don't believe, and it's not because they needed more evidence. I don't know about if it was just me, but reading this section here where Jesus talks about the lamp was kind of confusing. And maybe it's because we tend to think of eyes probably differently than people back then did. Maybe another way to think about it is to say that your eyes are not just like the lamp of your body, but the windows into your body. So that if your windows are clear, light comes in. If the shades are pulled back, the outside light comes in and lights up your house. But if your eyes aren't working, then you won't have any sense of light. And so if you're blind, you can walk outside on a beautiful, bright, sunny day, and it still might feel like it's nighttime. The lights can be off, the lights can be on. It's still dark for you. And and maybe it's not even to that extreme, but if your eyes are bad, you can't make things out clearly. I've been very fortunate to have good eyesight and not need glasses, but I remember a couple years back, things started to seem a little bit more blurry, particularly at a a distance. But it kind of happened slowly, so you just take it for granted. And I finally decided to get my eyes checked and Sure enough, my eyes weren't 20-20 anymore, part of being middle-aged, and I decided to get some glasses. I remember putting them on and, and looking out at the mountains and saying, wow, I forgot how clear these mountains were. And it brought joy to be able to see clearly again. I'd gotten used to a slightly blurry world. And Jesus is saying the problem with you not seeing me is because your eyesight is bad. It's not that I need to do something bigger. If I did something bigger, you don't even have the eyes to see it. You need your eyes to be healed. You need need glasses to be able to see what is going on. And imagine if you're you're standing in front of a blind woman and you've been working on this magic trick for weeks and you're so excited to show it to her, but you don't realize that she's blind and you do this magic trick and she just stands there like, well, what happened? I didn't see anything. You could disappear and she'd be like, Well, that's no big deal. I couldn't see you in the first place. And Jesus' point is, we are all spiritually blind, and that's why we can't see his signs. Seeing won't lead to believing 
if you can't see in the first place. And it makes it all the worse if you're convinced that you can see. I can see just fine. I don't need glasses. I don't need any help. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 9. Jesus, this whole chapter, I love this story. He heals a man who is born blind. And then there's an uproar, especially amongst the religious leaders, because they refuse to believe that Jesus actually healed this man. And the, the irony of the whole story is the man born blind sees way better than the religious leaders who think they can see perfectly. And so that man who is healed comes to Jesus and he says, yes, Lord, I believe in you. And he worshiped Jesus. But then some of the other religious leaders hear and ask Jesus, well, what are you saying? Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus then tells them, I entered the world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think, they are bl- think that they can see that they are blind. And some of the Pharisees are standing nearby and asked them, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. And that's the key thing. We're all blind. None of us can see Jesus on our own. But it's our pride that keeps us from admitting that. That think, oh, I can just figure out things on our own myself. That every single one of us needs a miraculous work of God in us to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus for who he is. And once you do, then you see Jesus and his God's glory all over the place. But when you're blind, you can't see any of that. Right? There are some places where first you need to believe something in order to be able to see that. And the first step to faith is Jesus, in Jesus is to believe you actually can't see rightly, that your vision is off. And why don't we admit that? Well, again, it's our pride, our ego that keeps us from admitting these things. That's in the end what keeps everyone from belief, your ego. When sin first came into the world, what was its promise? That you could become like God. It played to our ego, to our desire to not be subservient to God, not to be under God, but to be a peer to God, to be like God, to not need God. But when God is no longer the center of human hearts, as Herman Bovink writes, when God is no longer the center, then immediately our own ego, our own individual existence, our own rights, our happiness, our esteem, our honor, our money, our fame, and our name become the center. And we live our whole life in worship of those things. And when you are wrapped up in yourself, it's no wonder you can't see God's glory. Because you're so focused on yourself and how you compare and why this person didn't what you wanted and how they insulted you and how you're better than them. To believe in God allows you to take your eyes off yourself and lift them up to see his beauty and his glory. But we don't want to put our ego to death. We don't want to admit that we're worse than we let on. It's nice being your own boss. We don't want to bend our knee to Jesus. We don't want to admit our eyesight is bad. So how do we end up believing? Well, it's often God, through his grace, brings us on our knees to show us we can't do it on our own. To realize, actually, I'm not that good at being my own boss. That the worst part of ourselves seem to get three votes when it comes to deciding what to do. 
Right? That, that the freedom that we think we have apart from God has just led us to become a slave to our own addictions and our worst habits. And sometimes God will open your eyes to help you realize, I'm tired of living that way. And I need help. I need someone to pick me up. I need someone to redeem me from my sins. And then we realize that perhaps we've been running from the one that we need most. And I think that's why the Queen of the South and the citizens of Nineveh responded to the message. They knew something wasn't right. They knew all that they had was a facade and their hearts were empty and they heard the message and they believed. And this is why Luke focuses on his gospel on the role of words. That in order to get your sight back, to see the beauty of Jesus, it's the word of God that can heal you. Believe Jesus' words and you can start to see Jesus' beauty. The word of God breaks into our hearts and makes us into something new. How did God create the universe? He used his word. His word is a creative word. And how does God make you new? By speaking his words of life into your heart to make you into a new creation. And Jesus is something better. This is why he keeps saying there's something better. Jesus isn't just a prophet like Jonah, this crazy guy who's yelling out things and smells bad. But Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, the creative Word, the powerful Word that can give you life again. So are you living in the darkness? And have you been living in the darkness and just telling yourself, well, this is normal, I can see fine, even though you keep hitting against stuff as you're trying to navigate the dark world? Do you wonder if there's something more to life? That there's a bright world out there of beauty and delight but you can never seem to find it. God uses his words to restore our spiritual eyesight. That's why the church from the beginning has focused on God's word. It's God's word that made the world, and it's God's word that will make you new in Christ. It's God's word that can put you back together and make you holy and whole. It's God's word that can let you see not just the world, but actually see the world that is meant to be seen as pictures and glimpses and previews of the glory of a God who made it all and give you a taste of the excellencies that he begs and encourages you to come and taste for yourself, a taste of heaven itself. What life, how much of our life are we missing out on because you're wandering through life with bad eyesight? because you're not fully giving yourself to Jesus. You're saying, oh, well, Jesus can work on these parts of my life, but I'm going to keep this section of my life for myself. It doesn't work out that well. Why are you holding yourself back from seeing the world and its beauty, from seeing God and its beauty? Why do you keep saying, I just need a, a little bit more proof, and then maybe I'd believe? I think part of it is we're afraid to fully give ourselves to Jesus. Like some of you, you're still on that journey to know Christ. You haven't publicly professed your faith. And there's things that are holding you back. But for others of us who are Christians, there's still areas in our life that we're afraid to give them fully to Jesus. And I think that's because we think we'll miss out on the life we want. And I'll take Jesus for this part, but I want this part, and I'm not going to give it up. But ultimately, in your pursuit of those things, it's a life without color. 
And isn't that proof enough that you're missing out on the best of life? I mean, just look at the beauty of our world. We live in such a beautiful place. There are so many incredibly beautiful places in this world, in our universe. And Jesus made it all to show you something about himself and something about his love for you that if if he can make this much beauty, this much glory, imagine what he can do in your life when he makes you new. And if you stop acting like you're just doing okay and give yourself, every single part of yourself, to him and to live for his glory, and he will make you holy and whole. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to give ourselves to Christ, to stop settling for bad eyesight, stop settling for a life of shades of gray, and keep and to stop running all over the place to think this one thing will give me that which I've been longing for. And instead, bring us to our knees and show us that Jesus is everything we need. And he is more than enough to satisfy all our desires. And that he can give us a life that is so much better than anything we ask or imagine. And it doesn't take us away from the suffering of this world. No, there's still sin. But it allows us to put this world into perspective and to see that the best of it are glimpses of the glory that awaits us in heaven. And we pray that you would help us long for that more. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.